You're listening to the National Trust podcast. I'm Alan Power. I'm a head gardener for the National Trust and I'll be your guide through some of the Trust's amazing gardens. My colleague, James Grasby, will be your esteemed guide through some of the Trust's stunning houses and collections and Kate Martin will be walking you through some of the Trust's most beautiful natural landscapes. In this episode, we're making a journey down to the southwest of the country to Glendargan Garden near Falmouth in Cornwall. This subtropical garden covers three lush valleys that sprawl down to the River Helford. Visitors can enjoy a picnic and a well-earned rest on a picturesque sheltered beach at the edge of the garden. We'll not only learn about the history of Glendargan, but we'll also get to know the insects that call this place their home. We'll walk among the unusual plants, both native and wildflowers and exotic imports, and even get lost in a mind-bending maze. We're standing in the car park outside the main entrance to Glendargan Garden and it's always very exciting standing on the precipice of any garden but you really feel it in a garden like Glendargan. We're looking out at a treescape and we're elevated above it so we're kind of halfway up some of the trees in the distance and you can see some conifers towering. This kind of garden for me is all about the relationship between the plants, the climate, the sea and the gardener who created it. And I'm meeting Ned Lomax, the assistant head gardener at Glendargan, to show me around his garden. Hi, Ned. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, good, thanks. Nice, nice to see you. Really looking forward to this. Great. Well, I'll be happy to show you around and, yeah, give you my spin on the place. So coming out of the, the visitor welcome building, we step into the, the entrance route, and this is the main visitor route into the garden. And we are primarily a, a woodland valley garden, so we don't have a lot of opportunities to play with, with flowers and perennials and herbaceous plants. So this sunny area of the garden is, is our chance to do that, and we've got plants from all over the globe. We're a maritime garden, so we're right by the sea. We're in the far southwest of Cornwall, so we're already much warmer than the rest of the country. But the sea and the movement of the air around the sea helps to keep the frost away. But then we're also situated in a sheltered valley. So as you get down to the valley, even a a windy cold day you can be in the base of the valley with the sun on you and you, you feel the temperature change so it's really that kind of protection from the elements along with the sea air which keeps the frost away means that we can get away with growing all sorts of different plants that maybe even just five miles away inland you wouldn't wouldn't be able to grow well, that's a watsonia behind us yeah. it glows doesn't it it's, it's a really nice upright structural plant but beautiful color real treat to see it prepares you for what you're about to see later, I think, this collection of plants here. It's really nice. The origins of the garden lie with the Fox family, who were local dynasty of businessmen. They had interests in mining, in timber, in fishing, but their main business was as ship agents based in Falmouth. So they had access to ships coming from all over the world. Falmouth was a growing port at this point in its history. A really vibrant place and so they had contacts with captains coming from Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand, South Africa and that was their opportunity to commission people to bring them back some plants. They didn't do it a great deal but they did have access to new plants as they entered the country and where better to try them than in a beautiful sheltered valley just a few miles away from the port itself. Alfred along with the rest of his family were members of the Society of Friends or, or Quakers as they're better known. The Quakers as a part of the Christian church were non-conformists 
and Cornwall was a place where they could practice openly and not be persecuted. They very much saw themselves as stewards of the land in their short period on, on the earth. The origins of the garden very much grew out of their, not only their religious beliefs, but the way they lived their lives. And they had a great respect for nature and this stewardship of the land. So they didn't come to, to Glendurgan and set out to impose themselves on the landscape and create a garden, but rather they wanted an escape from the busy lives in Falmouth. And they could escape everything. They could escape their kind of stresses and strains of business and all of that. And standing here today, it feels very special. Yeah, yeah, and that was showing the way they managed the land as well. They, they obviously had a staff of gardeners who worked with them, but their philosophy meant that they didn't feel they were superior in any way to, to anybody else. So they worked with their gardeners, and they also worked a lot in the garden themselves, and they were very hands-on. They were very modest people, and they lived modestly, and that shows in the garden that it's, it's not... It doesn't shout, it's very understated... And that's something we really like to preserve, that, that feel of a quiet family garden where people can contemplate, relax, and just enjoy it for what it is. We've just passed a junction, a bit of a choice in the garden, and we're, we're on what feels like a little bit of a terrace above an expanding valley below us. I mean, for me, the excitement just builds all the time. Really, it's the maturity of the garden that's exciting in the distance. There are some huge trees on the skyline. So the path we're walking down at the moment we call the valley head path. Glendurgan is laid out in one main valley which runs from the house at the top of the valley down to the Helford River below and the village of Durgan, and then the Helford leads out to the open sea. We're just coming round to the top of the valley now, and if we look to our left in just a moment, appearing on the side of this huge rhododendron, we'll see the view down across the top of the maze, down to the lower part of the valley itself and then out to, out to the open sea. A whole new perspective has entered the view. So you've got a big, huge rolling valley in the distance and suddenly the depth of Glendargan is, is there to be seen. Amazing. So we're right down the, the lower part of the valley, or the main valley now, in an area which we've called the jungle. And we're sort of getting down towards the sea and, and Durgan village. So we're now looking down across the jungle, which is starting to come to its own now with different tiers of planting starting to emerge with bananas thriving right down the base with the huge leaves of the gunnera. It must have been amazing for Alfred and Sarah's 12 children to grow up here. In fact, the garden was so loved by the family that several generations later, the Fox family still live here at Glendurgan. I'm Charles Fox and I'm the great-great-grandson of Alfred Fox, who was the person responsible for starting this garden. When I was a child, this place was more of a wilderness, so it was like a sort of adventure playground, and my brothers and I were constantly exploring, scouring ourselves, climbing trees, walking along walls, falling into the pond, all that kind of thing. I can remember getting into scrapes, annoying the gardeners. <laughs> we used to put frogs or stinging nettles into their gumboots. So, <laughs> so when they came in in the morning, they had a nice start to the day. I remember that. I remember 
the, the wall garden here used to be immaculate and one day it was the garden was due to be open for the Red Cross and the day before, aged about five, I went into the wall garden and I decapitated about 500 red tulips and put them into a trug and brought them round to my grandmother as a present. <laughs> the gardeners are very careful here to leave areas of wildflowers and it gives a feeling of space and areas where children can play. And then, of course, the maze and the beach at the bottom of the garden. We did have a tree here which is called the pirate's tree and it was on a very steep bank and it kind of swerved down this bank and we turned that into a ship and we were always playing in that. Another area of the garden, the top of the cherry orchard, and my elder brother convinced me that there were crocodiles that lived up there. And then the edge of the garden was largely untamed, so there were woods all the way up the drive and we used to go in there and play. As a child, you had a feeling that it was much, much bigger landscape, of course. We heard there about Charles's vivid memories of growing up at Glendargan, and it sounds like quite a playful place to be. There was lots of hijinks and mischief went on. And speaking of playful times at Glendargan, I'm off to see the centrepiece of this great place, the maze. Looking across the valley, across some ponds with some lovely astilbes flowering and a runcus just going over, which are kind of faded pink and white flowers below us. And I'm looking at the Glendargan maze, the famous Glendargan maze with a thatched little hut as probably your hoped-for destination in the centre if you can find your way through it. It's a meandering, a dense, meandering, flowing maze of clipped cherry laurel, which um, I'm going to walk around in a minute, so I'm trying to plan my route in and out of that maze if I possibly can. But it, it's fantastic, and what an unusual thing to have in the middle of the garden. You can see people's heads bobbing up and down, and I can see a man disappearing into the distance. And we're kind of eye level with the laurels, so the pathways that you think from the outside, you'll be able to think, right, I'll have a look and I'll get down there. They kind of merge into a blurred evergreen hedge. So you can't plan your route. You have to explore it as you go. Uh, yeah, I feel a little bit lost, to be honest. There are two little lads running through the maze and their dad's taking a picture. Their parents are getting worried now. They can't see them anymore. <laughs> Hiya, yeah. you all right? <laughs> Success? Success. Good, good. <laughs> we haven't, not yet. And we've been up and down and all over that slope. And it's a, it's a fantastic, fantastic construction. And you can see the house at the top of the valley just peeking through. So I presume Alfred and Sarah could have watched their kids lost in the maze from that room on the top of the house. What a way to babysit. <laughs> We've just arrived at the centre. Oh, God, I made it. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> You've completed our maze. Have you been watching me from the centre, <laughs> meander my way, getting lost yes, all the way through? Yes, it's been quite amusing. <laughs> so I'm Tamsin. I'm the Senior Visitor Experience Officer at Glendurgan. It truly is quite a confusing maze, isn't it? 
it's quite a challenge and we have visitors of all ages enjoy exploring and taking on the challenge. One sort of tip we give people is that there are four palm trees in the maze and you need to aim to pass by each one of them before you get to the centre. And when you do get to the centre, there is a much quicker way to get to the exit as well. I'm sure people will be pleased to hear. But it's as much an enjoyment for visitors to watch other people getting lost in the maze. So from from a higher vantage point, um, with the maze being built on a slope, it's quite unique. I mean, it's clipped hedges, as you'd expect a maze to be. It's not overly tall, so they're cherry laurel. It's clipped cherry laurel hedges. And we're watching a couple now, and you can actually see them walking through. So you see their heads, so they can see over the top of it. So that's quite, I suppose that's quite reassuring in one way. You can see in and out, even if you're lost in there for hours, you can see in and out of it. And do you think, because the foxes had 12 kids, they designed it to be particularly challenging to occupy the kids for the afternoon? Yeah, it was definitely Alfred and Sarah's intention that they created this play feature to entertain their very large family. How long did it take you to master the maze? I still don't think I've mastered it. <laughs> it still takes me a while. Tamsin, it must take an awful lot to maintain and look after this, and presumably you're always planning for its future as well. Yeah, we want to ensure that this can be enjoyed by future generations. We're just embarking on a four-year restoration project to restore the maze so that it can be enjoyed for the next 200 years. We are running a maze fundraising campaign and our visitors can find out about that online and also by speaking to staff and volunteers at the property if they visit. From manicured cherry laurel hedges of the maze to wildflower meadows. I'm catching up with Ned Lomax again now to learn more about the wildflower aspects of the garden and what it takes to maintain them. The wildflowers are one of the great strengths of Glendurgan and having these beautiful open vistas looking down across the banks it's really fantastic to see when everything's in full colour in the spring. So below us here we can see the cherry orchard currently full of long grass and wildflowers which have been left to set seed. This is the time of year where we now start to cut all the grass and break it up and remove it so that once the bluebells and the other wildflowers have set their seed we can cut the grass, remove it, remove competition for the wildflowers and therefore help them to, to flourish as well. The best time to come and see the wildflowers is probably the end of April, May. So that's the real colourful time of the year. But the interest does extend on into the summer. There's plenty to see. But the other great thing about them is that they provide a really good habitat for wildlife as well. Um, one of our gardeners, Matt Hoban, is really into his invertebrates particularly, so I'm going to hand over to him so he can tell you a bit more about them. I find insects fascinating. It's like, you know, they do things differently. There's, there's nothing like them and they're all around they're not easy to find all the time but they're all around us and we don't even notice one insect of particular interest is the black oil beetle which is very rare now it's a largish black obviously beetle and it's got a, a really unusual life cycle it lays its eggs in little patches of bare ground and the larvae come out they're called triangulins and they climb up to the top of a flower and wait for a bee to come along. And then they climb on the bee, and the bee takes them back to the nest, the solitary bee nest, and they basically grow up in the bee's nest and eventually emerge out of the bee's nest and carry on the cycle again. They're sort of more or less parasitic, I suppose, like a cuckoo. It's why they're rare, basically, because they've got particularly specialised ecology and life cycle, so that, you know, the animals like that are always more vulnerable to, to change but they seem to be thriving here. I've seen them several times this year, so that's really pleasing. And they're quite good indicators of having a, a healthy, 
habitat and a healthy range of habitats, which um, we try to do in the garden here. So, you know, they're important in that respect to give us an idea of what's going on and whether we're doing the right thing for wildlife here, which we are. They're at the sort of base of the food chain really, so most of the birds will have some dependence on them. Uh, small mammals like, you know, mice and shrews, hedgehogs, you know, there's all sorts of things. Even foxes eat insects quite a lot. So yeah, they're at the base of the food chain and a lot of other things depend on a healthy invertebrate population. You know, you have to try and spot what's out there. So there's a lot of hoverflies, butterflies, the flying insects obviously are more obvious. And you might find an oil beetle trundling across the path which happens going from one place to another. So if you do, don't tread on it. Be very careful with it and um, let it go about its business. There are a few obvious things you can do for insects. Water is a really important thing. Even having a tiny pond is very good for invertebrates, dragonflies, damselflies and the like. And having untidy bits, brambles, nettles, undisturbed, untidy bits of your garden as much as you can bear are also ideal for insects. They don't like disturbance. They like to just get on with things themselves. And for butterflies, having a range of food plants. So if you want to attract, you know, your common garden butterflies, brambles and nettles are important. Things like rose bay willow herb and your native plants are what our native fauna, insect fauna, use as food plants. We have a large-ish pond here, it's not quite a lake, and we get a great number of damselfly and dragonfly species. Their larvae sit in the silt at the bottom of the pond for three, four, even five years before they come out. And then pupate and cocoon by the side of the pond and will come out a really impressive emperor dragonfly, which is the big blue one, gold-banded, that you will see hopefully in the garden this year. We've just meandered away down through the garden at Glendargan, kind of in and out of really dark, deep, shady areas with amazing plants and tree ferns, and we just emerged into this tiny little, almost pocket-sized village. And there's the sea. There's the sea with yachts bobbing up and down on the sea, this crystal-clear water, people paddling, kids swimming, people on boats. I don't know if you'd want to be anywhere else. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. Join us in two weeks' time when we'll be meeting one of Glen Durgan's longest-serving volunteers. Don't forget to subscribe to the series and do give us a rating and review on iTunes. I look forward to our next adventure and I hope you'll join me. Until then, from me, Alan Power, goodbye.